My name is Pastor Jeff. I'm going to be reading out of Luke 24, verses 14, uh, 44, 53. Then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he let them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessing that continues on and on, even today in our lives. May we continue to worship you as we listen to your word and your truth, that it would cause us, Father, to uh, repent and trust upon you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. That wasn't terribly enthusiastic. It's fine, though. I accept you as you are. You don't need to be super excited. This is our last message in our series on Luke. We started it in 1947. <laughs> had actually started it just to, the ink wasn't dry. No, it's been 18 months almost, I think, that we've been in the book of Luke. So this is our final uh, study in the book of Luke, at least as a part, part of this uh, study. So we're glad uh, to have been able to make our way uh, through the book of Luke. This summer, we're going to be looking at a different psalm each week uh, throughout the summer going into uh, September. So that'll be an enjoyable time uh, in the, psalm, the psalms this Summer. I was thinking about internship, Blake as interning as the worship intern. I don't know. I was thinking fondly of that because myself and uh, Pastor Jeff, who just read the scripture, we both served as interns here at this church when we were in uh, high school, as along as a number of our friends did. And, and the people who have interned at this church are, are serving in places all over the world, including one of our more recent interns, uh, Adam, who is now serving as pastor at FBC in Ashland. And so uh, you might be praying for Blake because uh, we have just found, uh, one writer put it this way, figure out where God is working and join him there. And we just have seen as we've allowed young people to try, to try it. What does ministry look like? They just end up serving the Lord. So cool. And also, sorry, Blake, um, but you must be destined for ministry. Or it also might mean, Blake, uh, it, the standards of this church are terribly, terribly low. If they let Jeff and I do it. <laughs> You might be thinking, wow, I became an intern at FBC. Apparently, if you can fog a mirror, you can be an intern. <laughs> See, let anybody do it. The power of Jesus' resurrection is what we're going to talk about this morning. The power of Jesus' resurrection. I want you to think about it this way. Maybe if you go to um, Yosemite this time of year because of the snow melt, there are a lot of waterfalls. In fact, I saw a report this uh, week from a uh, one of the rangers down at Yosemite, as he indicated, there are waterfalls they haven't seen before. 
There is so much water melting. You say, oh, we didn't know this was a waterfall, but apparently it can be. So there's a lot of waterfalls. So if you go up to a real powerful waterfall, especially one that's falling very high with a lot of uh, water flow, maybe another one you might be familiar with is, is Multnomah Falls. If you walk up the path to the bridge, so you're very, very close to it, you can become sort of overwhelmed with the power and size of the waterfall. You hear the water crashing down and the weight of it, and, and maybe even if there are, are rocks and stones at the base of the waterfall, you may even be able to observe erosion that has occurred to stones because of this falling water, and so you can become sort of impressed. Wow, this is a powerful thing. Whoa, this is kind of cool. And then you go home, but you, what practical use is it? You take a picture, you take a selfie. Look, I stood in front of water falling downward. You know, that's that's pretty impressive. And you wonder, well, but people have said, you know, this should be put to practical use. So sometime in the history long ago, somebody said, you know what? If we stuck a wheel on this moving water, it'll turn a crank and we can mill flour from grain without having to hook a mule up to it. And so you can take this, this powerful thing and put it to a particular use. And of course, in modern times, we said, well, if we ran all this water through a turbine, It'll turn an electric generator and we can produce electricity. So now something that is powerful but really not useful, you say, wow, that's incredible. That's really powerful. Interesting. It's turned into something that's particularly useful. And what I want us to see is the resurrection is also both of these things. The resurrection, on the one hand, we stand, especially on Easter Sunday, and we say the stone was rolled away and Jesus was raised in his glory. And we say, holy cow, Jesus was raised and, and sort of the spectacle of the resurrection by God's grace impacts our hearts. And we say, that's incredible. But then maybe at some point, maybe it's Monday after the chocolate uh, hangover hits in after Easter, we say, well, Jesus is raised, but I still got to go, go to work today. So what, the power of the resurrection, what's the practical uh, use of it? And that's what we see in this passage here with the disciples, is the intersection of the power of the resurrection with the life of the disciples. And then we get to discover what it produces in the individual. So the power of the resurrection, first thing I want us to observe about this, we're going to look at two things. Of course, the power of the resurrection produces a lot of things. We're just going to look at two things from the text today. The first thing is the power of the resurrection gives joy and assurance to fearful hearts. The power of the resurrection gives joy and assurance to fearful hearts. One of the popular things you see at church camps nowadays is what's called a high ropes course. Camp Tadmore, which is a camp run by our association of churches here in the Northwest in Oregon up near Sweet Home has a high ropes course. So they build a balance and obstacle course in the trees. Of course, it would be boring to put it down by the ground. So let's build it 70 feet in the air. And so you got to climb up to this thing, and you're walking across various obstacles and balances and swings and whatever, and you're 70 or 80 feet up in, in the pine trees. Now, before you climb up, they give you these two clamps. They're called lobster claws, is what we call them. And, and the entire time that you're on the high ropes course, these clamps are attached to a cable. One time when we were getting ready to go up, one of the boys was smart enough to ask the attendant of the high ropes course, and he said, well, how much can one of these clamps hold? How much, how much weight? And he said, one of those clamps and the rope that's attached to it can hold the, average, the weight of an average passenger car. That's how much one of those can hold. You've got two. And you're always clamped in. So if you were to fall and your entire weight would be on those two clamps, you have no concern whatsoever. 
Hey, you're not, th those clamps are designed for much more than what you could uh, possibly uh, put on them. So what happens is once you're up in the air, if you're like me, you get a little bit nervous because the problem isn't the fall, it's the sudden stop at the end that is really frustrating. Once you get to that point where you say, wait a second, I've got these two clamps that can hold tens of thousands of pounds, what's the problem? And once you sort of get in your head, there is no problem, the obstacles actually become terribly easy because the only reason those obstacles are hard is because you're looking at the ground so far below you. And so the assurance you have on those clamps suddenly creates a whole difference in how you navigate through these obstacles. The power of Jesus' resurrection does the same thing. It gives joy and assurance to people who are living in a world that creates fearfulness. Since Jesus is raised, those who see and believe in the risen Christ experience joy, joy of a new life in the Lord because we are freed from fear when we trust a risen Savior. Because the worst thing that can happen to a Christian is we die. And that's not too big a deal if you are raised from the dead. So therefore, since Jesus is raised, those who believe and experience life in Christ are freed from fear because we trust a risen Savior. So the power of the resurrection in real time, in real life, gives joy and assurance to fearful hearts. Let me read verses 36 through 43 of uh, Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, that is the disciples, that is the they in this passage. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. So here we have the disciples gathered together in the room. Christ has risen, but he has not yet made himself known to all of them. And, and the Bible describes the disciples as afraid. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened, especially when they saw Jesus because they weren't expecting to see Jesus suddenly appear, them, appear there, there before them. What's interesting about Jesus' phrase to them is, is he says to them, peace to you. So Jesus shows up in, in their midst, and he addresses them anticipating where they currently are. The current state of their spiritual life is fear and doubt. That's the, the current state of their spiritual life. They are afraid. They're not sure what's going on. They aren't sure what God is up to. They aren't sure what to expect, <clears throat> expect and so they are Afraid. Now, what happens when we're afraid and, and we don't know what's going to happen? Our minds fill in the blanks of the unknown. When something pops up in the future and, and you don't know how it's going to work out, what your mind does is it fills in the blanks of the unknown, and oftentimes our mind fills in the worst possible scenario. And so the unknown actually accentuates our fear. So Jesus encounters them risen where they are, which is full of fear and doubt. And he says to them, peace to you. Why is this critically important? 
It's because of this. When Jesus appears to his disciples, he does not try to interact with them where they ought to be. He interacts with them where they are. Because should the disciples be afraid and full, <clears throat> and full of doubt right now? No. Jesus had told them on numerous occasions, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to be raised from the dead. A number of times in Luke, two at a minimum. So he has told them, here's the plan. There should be nothing to be afraid of. They should be waiting for him to show up. And when he shows up, they say, all right, you're on time. Let's get, let's get busy. And so where they should have been is a place of assurance and strength and power, knowing Jesus was doing what he said he was going to do. But he didn't address them where they ought to have been. He addresses them where they are. And where are they? Full of fear full of doubt. So Jesus shows up to his disciples. His intention is to meet them right where they are in this moment, even though it's not a good place, and address them in such a way to invite them to something different. So he says to them, peace to you. So Jesus does not hold back and wait for them to figure out him. Jesus is on purpose trying to interact with them where they are and draw them into relationship with him who is, who is risen. So this is Jesus showing himself that he is a, a savior that cares deeply enough to meet us where we are, regardless of where we are in our, in our life. Even, even the disciples here, he's coming to them and saying, peace, uh, peace to you. And they were frightened. It says they, saw, they thought they were seeing a spirit. They, they thought they saw a ghost. Nowadays, if somebody says they saw a ghost, we get a little bit skeptical and cynical. Back then, the idea of a ghost showing up would have been it would have been taken seriously. Somebody said, I saw a ghost last night. What did it look like? What happened? What time was it? I need to make sure I'm not around that location at the same time when you think you saw a ghost because I don't want to see a ghost. It was, it was well attested, but people saw ghosts. That's what they saw. And so they were thought they were seeing a ghost and they were afraid at seeing a ghost, which is strange because this has happened before. This happened on a lake. They were in a boat and Jesus walked by on the lake and they, got, they were afraid because a ghost was walking in the water and he had to tell me it's me? Like, this has happened before. <laughs> now, see, we, even we get impatient with the disciples. Are you guys serious? Like, is this really taking this long? Jesus doesn't do that. Peace to you. I want to reach you where you are, Jesus says. Look how Jesus helps them. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts. Verse 38, look at that carefully. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's a really fair question. I mean, everybody should ask that question every now and then. Why, why am I troubled? Why do I doubt? Because everybody does. Everybody is troubled from time to time. Everybody doubts from time to time. Everybody doubts about different things, about what the Bible teaches and about what Jesus has said. We all do that. This is normal. That's called being alive. But what Jesus wants us to do is look at what troubles us and, and look at our doubts and be willing to question the certainty with which we doubt. Because that's all a doubt is. What a doubt says is, I am certain this shouldn't be. And Jesus says, are you really? Should you be so certain? So what are they doubting? They're, they're doubting that Jesus is raised. This can't be a thing. And all Jesus is saying, are you so certain that you know how things work? Because that's where doubt comes from. Doubt says, I know how things work. And what the Bible says, it doesn't work the way I am certain things work. So therefore, I will doubt the Bible. And all Jesus is saying is, how, how are you so certain about that? 
Because sometimes we celebrate our doubts. We maybe make it a, it's a sign of an intelligence person or a high intellect that we're willing to question everything. And I, I agree with the notion that we ought to be willing to think thoroughly about what the Bible teaches and what it means in our own lives. But we become so certain of our cynicism, we fail to question our cynicism. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Are you so certain you know how the world works? Are, are you really that certain that you uh, will doubt? And so Jesus asked them to think about, so why are, you, why are you so full of fear? Why are you so full of doubt? So then what he does, because he's so kind, he provides them better information than they're, what, what they're working on. Their going uh, theory was this, people don't rise from the dead. Again, it's a little funny for the disciples because they have seen, you know, people rise from the dead. You know, so their working theory is that's not how things work. So Jesus provides them information. Look, he said, look at my hands and his feet, my hands and my feet. Now, he is not wanting them to notice his well-moisturized skin. That's not what he's saying here. He's wanting them to notice the scars that are, have, uh, are appearing on his hands and his feet. And the scars, of course, are there as a result of the nails which were used to attach him to the wooden Roman cross. And so he shows them this information. Look, I want you to understand, I'm not a spirit. This is a, my body has raised. I am raised from the dead. So he gives them two pieces of information. Look at my hands and feet. So therefore, I am Jesus. The, the same person who was crucified stands in front of you. Not an apparition, not a vision. They're not in a trance. They're not drunk. They're seeing the physical, bodily, resurrected Christ in front of them. So he shows them hands and feet, and he goes even further. Touch me and see. So they are told, grab my hands, rub my shoulders. We know from the other Gospels, Thomas was even told to uh, put his hand into the side where Jesus was pierced by the Roman spear. And he's saying, I want to provide, look, I am raised bodily. My physical body was raised from the dead. I am a resurrected Savior. So he wants to show them. He is real. He is alive bodily. He wants to meet them. More. He wants them to question their doubt, which says there's no such thing as resurrection. And Jesus gives them information. He says, no, you're looking at a raised Savior, a Savior who has risen from the dead. When he had, showed, when he had done this, verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet. And, and while they still disbelieved with joy and marveling, he said, have you anything to eat. So they looked at him and they examined him and his disposition towards them was kindness. I mean, hasn't Jesus been through a lot this particular weekend? I mean, they abandoned him, they rejected him, they um, cut off a servant's ear and left him, they, uh, they disowned him in his presence. He saw Peter disown him. He saw them all run from him. He's been mocked by the Roman soldiers. He'd been mocked by his, his own people, the people of Israel, who he himself redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, who he himself fed for 40 years across the wilderness wanderings, who he himself led in their campaigns into the promised land. This people has rejected him. And so he was put on a cross and mocked. So he's had a, a terrible, terrible weekend. And now when he shows up, the very people that he was closest to have trouble believing that he's alive. Regardless of all of these things, Jesus' disposition towards the disciples and towards us is one of kindness and doing everything that he can do in order to meet us where we are that we might see the risen Savior. 
Not meeting us where we ought to be, but where we are in this moment. Even if this moment is defined by fear, it's defined by doubt, or even defined by egregious sin, as it was in the life of some of the disciples. Jesus meets us where we are with a disposition of kindness. Notice, it's not believe me or else here. You notice that? What's he say? Peace to you. Look at my hands and my feet. Look, look. It's me. He is He's wooing them in to belief in the risen Savior right where he is. Now things change, and they're stunned. In verse 41, they were still disbelieving for joy and marveling. This is that disbelieving when something so amazing happens that you just can't get your head around it. When you apply for the college, the long shot application, and you get in, and you just sort of can't believe I got into this one. Or when you're, you're offered the job that you applied for that you barely qualified for, and you sort of had to massage the resume a little bit, and then you got offered the job, you can't believe it. You're, you're full of joy, and you're stunned at this amazing thing. I, this is something I never thought could have happened, and, and, and now all of a sudden it's, it's happening. And, and then you, you have to confirm it. I don't know if you've ever gotten those kind of letters or emails. You have to read it through 10 times. No, I've certainly read it wrong. I've missed a word that means the whole thing is the opposite of what I think. And, and with such joy and ecstasy, as they suddenly realize uh, Jesus is raised, that's where they're in. Is this really happening? That's where it says they disbelieve, but with joy and marveling. So he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Well, that's good. I mean, broiled fish is good. I would have gone for something else, you know. <laughs> if I'm the risen Savior, a, a steak would probably be what I would have, you know, you got to, any prime rib handy? Something. I, but, you know, broiled fish is what they ate a lot of there. And he ate it because it was well known back then. Again, nowadays we don't have theories on how ghosts operate because we basically disbelieve there are such things. It, the theory was ghosts don't generally eat, you know, and so you, they don't eat. And, and I don't know who came up with this. This is just something that was uh, believed culturally. So Jesus is a way of connecting where they are. He eats some fish. So, look, I'm not a ghost. I'm eating fish. And, and so they look, and he's kindly and gently doing everything he needs to do to reassure them, I'm alive. I'm alive. The power of Jesus' resurrection meets us where we are in the moment. And Jesus allows us to see him and look at him and examine him. And he kindly is trying to make known to us through his word and the power of the spirit that he is raised, that we might leave our life of fear and doubt and by faith see him and enjoy a life of joy and assurance. And that's what the power of the resurrection does. Let's look briefly just for a moment at the end of the, this section down in verse 50. Let me read it again. They led him out, or they, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And then he goes up in heaven in verse 52. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem. Look how they changed. What, how'd they start the passage? Fear and doubt. And now what have they come to? Worship. They have gone from fear and doubt and by the power of the resurrection, not them, the power of the resurrection, their eyes being opened to the resurrected Christ, they move from fear and doubt to joy and assurance. So therefore, in joy and assurance of a risen Savior, they now worship 
the risen Savior. So this is what we must recognize. Jesus knows how to handle your fear and your doubt. He can handle it, and he knows how to handle it. You don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to handle it. And oftentimes, we don't know how to handle that, and we don't think God likes it, so we just keep it all inside, and we won't tell anybody. Jesus knows how to address our fear and doubt. Jesus knows how to handle it, and he also can handle it, so you may as well be honest with him about it. Because he is the one who gently comes to us as a risen Savior and wants to show us by the power of his Spirit in his word that he is written, that he is risen. He lets us know he is alive, and the point of him letting us know that he is alive is so that we can have peace and joy with him today. That's the goal. It's to leave fear and doubt and enjoy life with the risen Savior in assurance and joy. The power of the resurrection gives us joy and assurance even in our fearful hearts. Okay, that's one purpose of the resurrection. Let's look at the other one. The goal of the risen Christ is to reach our hearts, but with a particular aim in mind. So the goal of the resurrection is we would see Christ raised, have joy and assurance, and then we would tell others about the risen Christ. That's the goal. So the power of the resurrection gives joy and assurance to fearful hearts and calls us to Jesus' mission in the world. That's the two things here gives joy and assurance to fearful hearts. The second element of that is his resurrection calls us to mission to the world. I've got a really, really hard question. It's a theological question for you, so think hard on it, and you know it's going to be the opposite. Why do you fill your car with gas? Why do you think about it? I mean, I know it's real easy. You might think it's an easy question, but here it is. What's the purpose of filling your car with fuel? It's because you want to drive your car. Am I right? You don't typically store fuel in your car. You don't put fuel in your car for storage. If you want to store fuel, you might have a tank on your property. Some people who live in very rural areas, they might have a tank on their property where they store fuel. But the fuel in your car is intended to be, to be used so that you might drive your car around. Or if you live in town like I do, you might store fuel in a little gas can in your garage because you're going to use that fuel to put into your mower or your, your hedge trimmer or whatever it might be. So you put fuel in the car because you want to go somewhere. So life in Jesus, the aim of life in Christ is not merely to be filled with joy and assurance. That would be like us putting fuel in the car and then parking in the garage. The goal is to be filled with joy and assurance because Christ is raised so that we can engage with his mission and have purpose. The purpose is not to merely be filled with joy and assurance. The purpose is to have the joy and assurance we have by having seen the risen Christ move us to engage with our purpose in Christ, which is his mission. So while Christ brings us joy, our purpose is to give good news to others. The risen Christ gives us new purpose in his kingdom as witnesses that Jesus has raised from the dead. Look at verse 44. Jeff, uh, Jeff read it earlier. Intern Jeff. That was a long time ago. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus had a purpose, didn't he? We talked about this quite a bit last week on the road uh, to Emmaus. Jesus had a purpose, and it was described by the Scripture. The Scripture in Moses, the prophets, and all the writings. Last week we said, from cover to cover, the Old Testament anticipated the ministry of Christ. And Jesus 
purpose was to accomplish everything the Old Testament said he was going to be. And Jesus says, I did everything. So Jesus' ability to obey God is unmatched by any human who has ever lived. Jesus did everything the Father wanted him to do. Jesus did absolutely nothing God did not want him to do. Also, Jesus did everything the Father wanted him to do precisely at the moment God wanted it done. So now just measure your own life with that. How are you doing? The few times you and I are really good at being obedient, we're about 20 minutes late, aren't we? Like God tells us to do something and we argue and argue and argue and argue and argue. And I'm fine, I'll do it. And God said, well, I wanted it done last week. But go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. So Jesus, on the other hand, always did what God wanted, always did what God wanted precisely at the moment God wanted it done, and never did a single thing God did not want done. That's perfect, 100% obedience. And Jesus did that to the glory of God as our sacrifice. So Jesus says, I have done everything in Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, I have fulfilled everything. But there's more to what Jesus has to do than what he did. Look at verses 45 through 47. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. That's great. He said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, everything that I did was predicted in the Old Testament. And I had to fulfill all of it because he is God who was born as man. So he fulfilled everything the Old Testament said he was going to do. He said, but guess what? It is also written. There's more to the story. It is also written that this good news will be proclaimed to the entire world. So Jesus' life was scripted by the Old Testament, and he fulfilled every word of it. And he says, but, but the Old Testament's not done yet. We're not done with that yet, you notice. He says, it also says this good news will be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And the disciples, if they're like any of us, we would say, well, get started, Jesus. And what does he do? Goes to heaven. He shows them, here's what the scripture says. Here's, here's what scripture says. I have to do all this exactly right. And he said, by the way, nailed it. Here's what else the scripture has to, has to says must be done. And that's your guy's job. So just as it was necessary that Jesus' life fulfilled the Old Testament, it is necessary that his work be completed to proclaim the good news to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and lo and behold, he is intending to fulfill that job through his disciples. That's the plan. That's what he's saying. I'm going to be witnesses of my resurrection to the nations through the disciples. That's the purpose. He is not going to stay here for that part. He is going to send his Holy Spirit, as we will see in a moment, to empower his disciples to do that. The anticipation here is that we would take as seriously the, our role to fulfill the scriptures as Jesus took his role to fulfill the scriptures. The, our purpose now is to fulfill what the scriptures said about our Savior, testify to the risen Savior to all nations beginning in 
Jerusalem. And if you read the book of Acts, remember, Acts is the next book after the book of Luke that he wrote. The book of Acts is the story of this happening. Remember, the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and where does it end? Rome. And it's the beginning of the story of the disciples taking this good news to all nations. So the power of Jesus' resurrection calls us into Jesus' mission, which is to fulfill the word of God and proclaim this good news to all nations. Verse 48 and 49, 48. You are witnesses of these things. That's what he's telling his disciples. You've seen the risen Savior. You have seen the risen Savior, so you're to go out and tell people Jesus is raised. Tell them, you've seen the, the holes in my hands and my feet. Tell them, you saw me eat fish. Tell them, you saw me ascend into heaven and say that I'm going to return. But he tells them they're not going to have to do it alone in verse 49. The Holy Spirit will come upon them to empower them to accomplish Jesus' mission. So what's the mission and purpose of the resurrection in our life? Is to have joy and assurance Jesus has raised and then be witnesses to testify of the risen Christ. They don't go alone. They go, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the last couple of verses with this in mind again. The ascension, as we call it. So he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. He wasn't a Baptist, apparently, with all this hand lifting. That's terrible. See, I can make fun of Baptists, I think. I think I have that right. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So that Jesus goes up into heaven, and they don't experience what they experienced at the beginning of the chapter. What were they experiencing at the beginning of the chapter? Fear and doubt. Now, Jesus has left. And what do they experience? Joy expressed in worship. Worship expressed in obedience. Where did they go? Back to Jerusalem, where he just said, he said, you've got to proclaim it to all nations, beginning where? In Jerusalem. But Jesus, you just got killed there. You just died there. And that, so you're afraid of dying now? See, now everything has changed now that they've seen the risen Christ. We have joy and assurance that he is risen, so therefore I can go engage in his purpose which is to be proclaimed the, the risen Savior starting in Jerusalem. I don't have to worry about it. What are they going to do, kill me? And they do, in fact, do that. Stephen's going to die in Acts chapter 7. James is going to die. This is going to happen. So they find purpose in Christ. They recognize his kingdom is greater than anything in this world, and they have joy from Jesus, and they give joy to others in Christ. That's how it works. The, the power of the resurrection reassures our heart that we have a risen Savior. And the intention is that joy and assurance is expressed to others as we tell to them, we have a risen Savior. A couple of things I just want to touch on by way of review. Some of us, because we struggle with doubt, and by some of us, I mean if you're alive. Everybody doubts. I don't know why we're so embarrassed by this. People doubt. Stuff happens. You go, God, really? Have you ever had that prayer? That's one of my favorite prayers. Something happens in life. You go, really? We're doing this now. This makes no sense to me. And so you go through all kinds of doubt. God's not good. He's not present. He's on break. I don't know what he's doing. So you go through doubt. So, so what we tend to think is God is like throwing stuff into our life to make us doubt, right? 
And then as soon as we doubt, he jumps into the room. Gotcha, you're a doubter. I want to make you feel terrible about your doubt. But what we have to recognize is how Jesus approaches doubters. How does Jesus approach doubters in this passage? Peace to you. He doesn't then meet us where we ought to be. He meets us in that moment because he's a kind savior, full of grace and truth. He's going to tell us the truth. You're doubting and you ought to be more critical of the certainty you have that you ought to be doubting and be willing instead to have certainty about the power of the risen Savior. But he's going to meet us where we are in that doubt. So what the enemy tries to do is convince God doesn't like us because we doubt. And so therefore we stop running to our Savior. But the scripture tells us how the Savior interacts with people who doubt. Peace to you. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Open your scripture. See what God is like. He meets us where we are, not where we ought to be, and calls us into a life of joy and assurance, which is what Jesus' resurrection does for us. So what, this is how it works when the stuff of life happens. The resurrection gives us joy and assurance. Since we know Christ is raised, when the stuff of life shows up, that stuff that drives us bonkers, it gives us stress and worry and all these kind of things. We pray for those things, but because we have our joy and assurance in a risen Savior, we don't need God to answer those prayers in a particular way. So what happens is when my joy and assurance is on a risen Savior, I can pray about the stuff of life, and if God says no, I can join Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and say what? Well, not my will, but yours be done. Because my joy and assurance isn't based on how you answer my prayer. My joy and assurance is based on I have a risen Savior. And my source of joy comes from something different than God doing things I want. It comes from the fact that Jesus has risen in power for me. Let's talk a little bit about purpose. Not purposes, purpose. Well, I don't know how to say this nice. I don't know how to say much nice, so this either. Your personal well-being is not your ultimate purpose. That's not your purpose here. Your personal well-being isn't your ultimate purpose. What Jesus does is he gives us purpose because he is raised that's bigger than us. If your purpose is merely your personal well-being, life going the way you think it ought to go, that's such that's such a small thing to live for. That means the purpose of your life is confined to the diameter of your life. And Jesus calls us to a purpose that doesn't merely confine itself to our points of contact. We join a purpose that's as big as, as God is. The question we have to be willing to ask ourselves is, do I trust that Christ's purpose in his kingdom is better than the purposes I think my life should be about. So let me give you an example. Most people think about testifying to the risen Christ is I don't share the good news of what Christ has done in my life. I don't participate in mission or I don't volunteer with min in ministry at uh, the church or in the community because it's kind of scary. I don't know if you know this, but serving the Lord can be intimidating. It can be scary. Have you, ever, have you ever, you know, kind of tried to get the gumption up to share with somebody the good news that Jesus has forgiven you? Do you ever get the, you know, kind of the, the sweat is running down your back and then all of a sudden you can't speak English? And, and, and you say, you know, it's really scary. It's really intimidating. I'll probably do it wrong. And so therefore, I'm going to leave it to the professionals. 
right? But what's interesting is we do stuff all the time that's scary and intimidating, don't we? Have you ever done anything scary and intimidating? Let me give you an example. I notice a few of us in, in the room are married. That means at some point you went, at some point you went on a first date. Right, was that scary and intimidating? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how people go on dates nowadays. I don't want to know, but <laughs> back when I was a youth, you had to pick up a phone. You didn't pull up the phone. You didn't text. Are you kidding me? Anyway, and you shouldn't text nowadays. Guys, if you're single, don't text. A, serious? I shouldn't give dating advice, should I, Jason? But he's like, no, don't. Don't text. Make the call. All right, so you picked up. This is how uh, calling a girl up to go on a first date. I'm, yeah, I'm showing a fairly traditional guy should call. You pick it up. You hang it up. Pick it up. Hang it up. Pick it, have you ever done that? You do that about 30 times. Then you dial it, but not the last number and hang up. And then finally, you just dial it, or you have your, your roommate, right, in college. Dial this number, and you step away. So now it's ringing, and you're all in. And you can't do it. And then she answers the phone, and your pizza's ready, or whatever you might say. <laughs> <laughs> so it's scary, but finally, you get the guts, and you ask her, and, and she says, yeah, yeah, because she has no idea you've been making this call for an hour. <laughs> she knows now. And so, but then things go well, and now you've got to ask the dad, can I marry your daughter? And then... Uh, and then maybe one day you, you decide you want a particular job, so you apply for a job. Now you got to go get our interview, job interview scary? Yeah, you don't know if it's going to go well. You don't know if this guy is going to be nice, if they're going to be rude, if they're going to ask you questions you're not prepared for. Some of us have opened businesses, and we threw a mortgage on the house, scraped up our savings, went all in, and we knew what we were doing, and we had a good plan, but we all know you can't plan for all the variables. So we don't know how it's going to go, and it's scary, and it's intimidating. Is it going to work? So don't come at me with it's scary and intimidating because we do scary and intimidating all day long. I'll explain to you why scary and intimidating gets in the way. Here's the thing. Let's go back with the asking the girl out. You want to ask the girl out, there's this obstacle of scary and intimidating, but you will scale that wall of scary and intimidating. Why? Because your purpose is so grand. That purpose is so incredible that I will scale that wall of scary and intimidating. The problem with scary and intimidating with the mission of God is not that there's an obstacle, it's we don't think the purpose is that grand. And so the reality is, it takes a speed bump of intimidating to convince us it's not worth our time. And it's not because the purpose isn't grand, it's because we've decided it isn't grand. And now as a matter of fact, this, I don't want to throw this church under the bus, so I'll involve all churches. So as a church, what we said is, people don't think the purpose is very important. And so therefore, anything will derail Christians from pursuing God's purpose. So what we're going to do is we're going to look for ways to make serving God so convenient and so easy and fits right into your day and requires no risk and all you have to do and it's so super easy. So what did we just confirm for you when we tried to make serving the Lord easy? You know what? You're right. The purpose is kind of lame. And if the church can't make it easy, you probably shouldn't bother. See what happened? When did this start? I have no idea. The purpose of Christ is the highest purpose there is. There is no other purpose in the universe that is grander, more exalted, more important than the purpose of Christ to share the risen Christ to the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is no other. You can come up with anything. The problem isn't whether or not our purpose is grand in Christ. It's whether or not we actually believe it. 
And the trajectory of our lives will reveal whether or not we think it's actually grand or not. This is the greatest of all uh, purposes there is. There is no higher, higher calling in the universe than being a witness of the resurrection of Jesus, full stop. No higher calling to be, than to be a, re, a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And the power of the resurrection of Jesus gives us joy and assurance so that we can engage in this purpose to see Jesus proclaimed around the world. The power of Jesus' resurrection gives us joy and assurance, especially to our fearful hearts, and the power of Jesus' resurrection calls us to Jesus' mission. Final thing, we, ask, uh, we always, often talk about hope. We ask the wrong question about hope. Often we ask, what do we hope for, when the better question to ask is, when is your hope? And for the believer, the, our hope is when Christ returns or when we see him in glory, in eternity. That's when our hope will be fulfilled. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to ask that same question. Now, what is your hope? But when is it? You're just hoping this week you're gonna have a little bit better week? Maybe you came to church for that reason. Go to church, listen to a guy yammer on for an hour. Certainly God will hook me up with some good parking spots this week. Just so you know, it wasn't worth it. If you came here just to get a good parking spot, it wasn't worth it. But if you came here hoping to find hope that lasts forever, that's what Jesus offers. Trust Jesus for forgiveness, and he gives us life and purpose that lasts forever. Join me as we pray. God, we thank you for Jesus' resurrection. And we thank you for your kindness that you come to people like us, full of doubt, full of fear, full of questions, and you meet us where we are, not where we're supposed to be. And in your kindness and gentleness, you call us to trust you. God, we thank you that you have told us in your scripture, it is just as good to see the risen Christ in the word of God as it is to see the risen Christ himself. And so by the power of the spirit, God, we can open your word and see our risen savior. And God, we would pray that this week, for those of us who struggle with fear and doubt, that by the power of your resurrection, you would give us joy and assurance that we serve a risen Savior that meets us where we are. God, I would ask, though, in those moments where you give us that joy and assurance, that you would remind us you didn't give that to us to store and to hold on to. You gave that to us that we would engage in the greatest purpose there have, has ever been, and that's to testify of the risen Savior in the world around us. Show us, God, what it looks like in the relationships we have around us to share with people the hope that we have been made new because Christ is risen. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you he's coming back. And we pray, God, that you would give us strength to endure to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.